who takes us to the office and says we need uh, 30 more of them. I think so. 40 more. Hmm? It still needs to... I'll talk louder. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Listen, you don't know, I come from a long line of New York City school teachers. And my Aunt Miriam used to tell about her friend Estelle also. My Aunt Miriam was a New York City school teacher. Her friend Estelle was a New York City school teacher. She said, my friend Estelle gets on a bus where people are all congregated up around the front near the driver, and they haven't sufficiently moved down in the bus to accommodate everyone who's gotten on. And she said, Estelle looks around and says in a loud voice, forward. <laughs> so I come from a long line of New York City school teachers, and uh, we speak like... <laughs> The first thing I needed to do when I moved to California was, was learn to drop the accent because otherwise people mocked me too much. And Sometime I'll do it for you and then you can hear it, but I have to be in the right place. And I really, in honor of Sherry, want to talk about, in this very short life, what are we meant to learn? And the reason that I thought, there were 10 reasons at least why I thought about talking about it, the, the Dharma this way. One is I wanted to th think about Sherry as being such a transmitter of knowledge to so many people. There are so many things that we need to learn how to do in life. I remember that often I've told you the story of my, my friend. Um, ah. ah, there you go. My, my, there you go. My friend who's living in the assisted... Whoa, now I have to turn it down. My friend who's living in the assisted living, who's in her 90s, who said, please come and teach meditation here. I am having... Um, for me and for the people in the assisted living, because I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation. And I went and did it, and that's a whole other story. But the story, the, the line that was stayed in my mind is I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation because I think that is the story of life from the beginning. Everybody is having trouble adjusting to their new situation. Moment to moment, we have a new situation. We get it. I, I, you know, you, I've been thinking a lot because I have a lot of friends who are quite sick at this moment. And it's as if you walk into a door feeling like the rest of the world you get a diagnosis, and you walk out into another world. It's a completely different world where nobody, where the most of the world is not living at that time. Well, the people you know are not living on your planet. Your planet is full of X-ray machines and CAT scans and MRIs and laboratories and blood drawing and technicians and nurses and other medical personnel, hopefully lovely and kind, but it's a whole different world. It's the world of the sick, not the world of the people who aren't thinking about being sick. And the, in the world of the sick, you wake up and think, is today my day? Why not? And today I find out the news about the biopsy or not. It's a whole different world. So I was thinking about this very short, precious life, thinking about it also because it's, it's situated today is just that the, the day it's on the cusp of this year 57, seven, 57, 67, becoming 68 tonight at sunset.
And a lot of people uh, having the consciousness of the last month of the year thinking about what are the course corrections that I need to change? What do I need to rectify? What do I need? Who do I need to call to make amends so that I start this year in a fresh way? Which I'd like to actually have as one of the things that we think about this morning. My uh, One of my things that I think about with pleasure when I say that is some years ago, in the days just before Rosh Hashanah, I was talking to my friend Sheila, who said to me, do you have anyone in your heart that you haven't forgiven? Um, so just think about, you know, do you have anyone in your heart that you haven't forgiven? Um, so I said, well, you know, really, I'm very fortunate uh, in my life. Not a lot of terrible things happen to me. I don't have a terrible story of childhood. I, you know, not a lot of awful things happen to me. So I don't have a lot of people that I struggle with or that I'm estranged from. Just one. And uh, I said, I have one person. And uh, I actually did have one person with whom I, uh, who had said something that so devastated me about me that I was, I, I was angry. I couldn't believe that this person who I thought was a friend had said that to me, wrote me a letter about myself. I stayed mad for 10 years, which is a very long time. And, but at the time, in the middle of those 10 years, Sheila asked me that question, if I have anybody, and I wasn't telling people about it. For one thing, I didn't like to say I had, was carrying a grudge for so long, and also I didn't want to have to tell anybody what this person said about me. So I, didn't, so I, I said, well, I have one person, and I told Sheila who the person was, the whole story. He said, can you believe it? And she said, if you have, her answer was very good. She said, if you have one person standing between you and having a completely loving heart, don't you think you could get over it? <laughs> you know, think about there's a, a 6, 000, 6 billion beings on this earth. To be able to say with a whole heart, I wish for all beings, may you be well, may you be happy, may you live in peace. See, because... If if I if I have to whatever degree my own heart is constricted is is barred in any way, nobody else is affected by that except me. I am the person with the thorn in my heart. You know all the stories about the elephant gets a thorn in its leg and it can't get it out, and some mouse or some bird comes and takes out the thorn. You have one thorn somewhere; it continues to hurt you, even if it doesn't hurt you all the time. When you turn your foot on that way then the thorn hurts you. If there is one person in the world with whom you are not reconciled, when the thought of that person comes up in your mind, you think to yourself, ah, oh, why did I think of that person? I was in such a good shape until I remembered that person, and now my mind is all clouded. I have spent whole retreats thinking to myself, may I not think of that person? Because if I think of that person... Yeah, it's a, you know I can tell it to you now because it's sufficiently far enough in the past that I'm not humiliated by it. But the 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 recognition that I am the one who is suffering, if there's anyone left in my heart. So maybe that's what we're meant to learn. But that we're meant to learn something, or that we have the idea that we're meant to learn something. I don't know that all human beings think what's this about. I wanted to read something to you. 
Uh, so, they, so actually, I want to tell you this is situated uh, this day today that I happen to be here is situated just on the cusp of Rosh Hashanah of the New Year, to which one hopes one enters with a with a really loving heart, and also uh, in honor of Sherry, who, as we talked about, had such an expansive heart and inclusive heart, and uh, the, just the day after the anniversary of September 11th that has become in so many ways um, such a, a, a an icon of uh, the kind of thinking or politics in this country for the la- and and really for so many people yesterday is a tremendous anniversary of the death of a loved one in a in a quite a devastating way and the day the world changed in a devastating way so really to think about that and all of the stories at that time of the people who went to work or didn't go to work and the people who about whom you read there were two the two stories come to mind first of all the people who on their way to work said ah oh, my tooth is hurting too much to go to work I'll go home today I'll go tomorrow or the people who Someone called and said, uh, you know, I can't come in. Can you work a second shift for me? Who stayed? Here's a poem. Here's a poem by a Polish poet whose name I cannot... It's probably Zimborska. A lot of Z's in it. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. Because you were alone. Because you were with others on the right, on the left, because it was raining, because of the shade, because the day was sunny. You were in luck. There was a forest. You were in luck. There were no trees. You were in luck. A rake, a hook, a beam, a break, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. So you're here, still dizzy from another dodge, close shave, reprieve, One hole in the net and you slipped through. I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen how your heart pounds inside me. Isn't that good? You know what I think about more often, I'm surprised, maybe because it happened just so down the road. A couple of years ago in a rainstorm on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, do you remember? A tree fell down. And it fell on a car of a woman driving her grandchild in a back seat in a car seat. And a grandchild lives and the woman died. One second earlier, one second later. It's always one second earlier or one second later. You see the pictures on the bridge where a piece of bridge falls down. See the pictures on the bridge in, uh, where did it just fall down? In Minneapolis. Minneapolis. You know, there was somebody who got over that bridge five seconds before it fell down. 
somebody approaching that bridge five seconds after it fell down who didn't go on the bridge. You don't know from morning till night. You say to somebody in the morning, I'll see you tonight. It's an actuarial guess. You don't know. You don't know. I think about that a lot when I'm on the highway and I pass an accident. Or you hear on the you hear on the traffic and they say, uh, there's a three car accident in the South Bay. Uh it's a fatality accident and the emergency equipment is uh the the paramedics are there and the fire department. So uh the highway the two th- left lanes of the highway have been closed. Be a very good thing to take alternate routes, so and so, so and so, so and so, so and so. And they're telling you how to get home. And I you know, I think they have to do that and it's I guess it's appropriate. But I think to myself, be really something to stop and say, let's just think about for a minute about the person who won't get home tonight and their family, that person who thought they'd get home and didn't get home, and may their family be sustained and uh, may things work out for them. Because their life has changed irrevocably in that moment forever. And all you have to do is take Highway 37 instead of something else. And so instead of making it seem like a commute annoyance, to make it a cause for communal prayer and make it also a cause for communal waking up. We don't know how much time we have to figure out what we're supposed to do in this life. That's actually one of the prayers uh, on Yom Kippur which um, really addresses the fact that you don't know as you go into any year whether you're going to finish that year. Who's going to die in this year it begins? Who by fire, who by water, who by this, who by that? You don't know what's going to happen to you. My very good friend Tamara Engel is dying. And uh, uh, when I talked to her just the day before yesterday, she said, I think I'll go to shul on Rosh Hashanah, she said. But she said, I'm surprised. I didn't think I'd be here by now. I'm supposed to be gone already, but I'm still here, so I might as well go. Uh, and I'll go on Yom Kippur if I'm there a week later and I can still stand up. Um, and she's dying of ovarian cancer as well, like Sherry did. And you die over time, but you know that you're dying. She's known she's been, that she really was dying since uh, March when the chemotherapy stopped working. But she said, you know, you just don't know. You get up in the morning. She says, as long as I'm all right, I put on my clothes and I have this day. But I won't be here next Rosh Hashanah. And that she knows. And for most of us, we don't know that, you know. We assume some time. The older you get, you don't assume limited time, unlimited time. But you assume. You don't think. I wonder if it's the last time I'm going to have this or the last time I'm going to have that. And you don't think about the close-shavedness of life. You never know. You think, oh, I'm missing this plane. What a, what a, you know, how bad that is. I knew, years ago, there was a plane that, uh, there was a big plane that crashed, it was 1980, I rem- I, I, probably around 1980, Crash taking out of Chicago, taking off out of Chicago. Do you remember that there was a big? Um, Is that the ice? 
No, no, I was, something's tail fell off. Or, but it, it, they grounded all those um, planes, I remember. Yeah, and it left right, right, um, right, at, right, it, didn't, it got out right before they grounded all the planes. And they grounded all the planes, something. But anyway, I had a friend on that plane <clears throat> who died. And I thought about, and the, on the news after that, they taught, they had you know news coverage of the people who were just two minutes late to get on. They missed getting on the flight, and there was a, or somebody who really wanted to get on the flight and it was full. And somebody said, "Well, why don't you take my seat? I'll go on the next flight." You know, you don't know ever what you're doing from one minute to the next. <laughs> and to think to yourself, given that, what should I do? That's I think the point. It's not actually even what should I learn. I thought about putting uh, putting today's talk together in terms of what should I learn. But I think it comes out more what should I do. Because the other half of the 9-11 story that always comes to my mind, along with the people who's, you know, I, in the middle, it, my tooth was hurting so much I turned around and went to the dentist instead of going to work. So I missed that. I was a little to the left, a little to the right, five minutes this way, five minutes that way. The people who were in it, about whom we know some final message, the people who made cell phone calls, all said, I love you, and take care of yourself. Don't you remember this? They are recorded. You know, hello, my plane is going down. I'm not going to make it. Take good care of yourself. It always makes me cry. Take good care of the children. I love you. Nobody recriminated in those last moments. And I think to myself, when the mind is clear, we don't recriminate. That's, that's not what we want to do. We want to connect, like Dorina said. I love you. And really, we live on in the people that we love. Just like, you know, I think about Sherry and the 8,000 children and the children of the eight, you know, the, their children and their children and their children. I mean, this physical body gets, um, isn't there anymore. And it makes a difference, you know. Uh, all of the all of the things that we say about those people live on in spirit, and they live on in memory. They do, but you miss them anyway. You know, it's not the same as being able to phone them up or being able to see them. It's different. That missing. And the serendipity of things, why now and why later? My friend Martha, who died two years ago, said while she was dying, in the months that she was dying, she said, um, sometimes I suffer because I think to myself, why me? You know, I'm only 62 years old. Uh, Lots of people, you know, my friend, why me? that I suffer when I think that. And then every once in a while, if I think that for a while and I suffer, then I remember and I think, why not me? You know, This is one of the things that happens to people. I think what happens is that the mind gets all upset and flustered and it says, why me? And it confuses itself. And then when it settles down, it says, why not me? I'm unhappy about this, but why not me? These things happen. Everything happens to everybody. I think that that's really the piece of knowledge that we, the piece of wisdom, not knowledge, the piece of wisdom that if we all had it, the world would be different. That everything happens to everybody. 
the people that we think are our enemies, the people that we put out of our heart, they also feel bad when their kin dies, when their dreams don't happen, when their own body fails, just like us. Everything happens to everybody. It's a, it's, it's a really an incredible thing to be a human being. You know, when you think about it, you know, it's amazing when you ask, when you just think about it like if you came from another planet or something and you weren't uh, familiar with human life or any kind of a life, here comes a baby out of a, out of a mother. And any, first of all, any kind of a baby come out of a mother. Whoever saw a puppy or a kitten that wasn't cute? Or who didn't think about the fact that giraffes give birth standing up and that the umbilical cord breaks because that giraffe falls on the floor? And it's a long fall and it breaks the umbilical cord. It's amazing every time I think about that. And elephants know how to take care of babies when they're born. They don't have to go to Lamaze classes. They have them. You know, they, somehow, everybody somehow has baby Mammals have babies and take care of them. And it's built into them. I think that, that the um, we don't think enough, maybe, about the DNA of... Um, there must be a... D, there is a DNA that instinctively knows how to care for one's progeny so that the species continue, otherwise it wouldn't. And it comes out with, uh, I don't know what, what, what sheep think of their babies or what cows think of their babies, you know. Yeah, I, I live up in the country, so in the spring we have lots of cow, baby cows and sheep, and I go by, I see these lambs, they're so cute, and I think to myself, is their mother thinking, this is the cutest lamb in the whole place, you know? You know, and, and you know, because the mother knows which is theirs, and they don't feed the ones that are not theirs. But are they appreciating that particular <laughs> one? Because when you have yours, it's the most cute thing in the world. You know, no one ever looked like that, and it's yours. And the minute you see it, usually or very soon after that, actually, whether you birth it yourself or whether someone else does, and you take it on then or soon after, uh, two minutes after that, it's you've known it forever and it becomes precious to you. I think the line from the Metta Sutta, which is part of what we just Xerox everybody could have, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, that particular vibe of having something else as dear to you as yourself, which I think we have that vibe whether we are mothers whether we actually birth mothers, whether we are men, that the vibe of caring for others, we all know that vibe, and we care about when When someone calls you up, as one of my friends called me, I don't remember, when there was a mine disaster a few years ago, and they finally rescued the miners at 5 o'clock in the morning, and one of my friends called me and said, you have to get up and watch the television because you have to see the miners coming out. Of, did you anybody here see it? See the elevator with the miners coming out of the mine and the people who have been waiting for days to see them coming out of the mine and their family embracing them. See, I get all those pimples. Because they're not people I know, but the vibe I know. What, you know that particular thought, what if it were mine? That particular ability for empathic response which human beings have. 
here's a piece of something to think about. This is somebody who's actually, one of the things that happens around this holiday time is people send me other people's Rosh Hashanah sermons. So uh, this is a piece of someone's sermon. And it's a reflection on being human and having things, well, let me, let me not tell you. When cosmologists are talking about how did the world come to be, this is the birthday of the world. Talking about, by the way, my granddaughter just started high school uh, this semester. Um, amazing. Anyway, she started high school, and the over the summer homework that she had to do was uh, they got a packet of creation myths. Uh, what the Inuit creation myth is, what the Hebrew Bible creation myth is, what the Babylonian creation story is, and to read everybody's story about how the world came to be because everybody's got a different story. And what does that mean? But among other things, it means that everybody is thinking, how did we get to be here? It doesn't come out of nothing, you know? It really did come out of nothing, but... (laughs) When I was thinking before of, of, uh, you know, if it came from another planet... And you see a baby, you see a baby come out of a person, and it's brand new, and then it gets, it, and on its own, it grows, it's programmed, and after a year, it locomotes by itself, you know, it's like, it comes out and it, it's, it's sort of, so to speak, connected, it's no longer viscerally connected by a cord, but you carry it around for about a year, a little bit more or less, and then after that, it's on its own, and it locomotes on its own for a certain amount of time, on this earth until it doesn't anymore. And then more come and more come and more come. Think about that. That's the most amazing thing in the world, that we get born, locomote for a certain amount of time, and then we don't. And where did we come out of and where are we going to go and which piece of us is going to get left? And This is a powerful question. Now I'm reading from this person's Rosh Hashanah service. When cosmologists study the universe, they also tell a story. They tell a story about silence. Their story says that everything we are, all the particles, all the forces, the duct tape of our experience popped into being, they say, entirely by chance, out of great quiet, out of nothing, out of a flux, a quantum flux. Suddenly, with a bang that made no sound, Matter and energy appeared and eventually formed atoms. And the atoms stitched themselves into compounds. And the compounds hung around for a long, long time and spun themselves into stars and then into planets and seas and clouds and air. And at some time, somewhere, somehow, maybe God breathed life into those molecules or... Maybe the molecules assembled themselves according to a deeply rooted plan. But cells begat cells. And life began on Earth, or maybe elsewhere. And those cells then recombined to form newer and newer forms of life. And for a long, long time, for billions of years, sea dwellers and then land dwellers and evergreens and flowers, none of these creatures none of them had evolved the ability to appreciate what was happening. 
to have a feeling for beauty, for elegance, for chemistry, to ask the question, why are we here? Until very, very recently, say the Darwinians. Life produced mind, a creature with a brain that could ask, where did we come from? How are we made? Why is the rose red? Oh, what a lovely, velvety, beautiful red. So the universe got an appreciator. After 14 billion years (laughs) of self-assembly, we now have physicists. And one way to think of a physicist is to say that a physicist is the atom's way of admiring themselves. (laughs) After all, a physicist is made of atoms and can say what a good job they've done. (laughs) But a human brain not only appreciates beauty, a human brain has a moral sense, a desire for justice, for good. A human brain can suffer and love and care and feel the suffering of others. We may come from silence, but mind, mind breaks the silence of the universe. Mind introduces meaning, or at least the search for meaning. Maybe this is in the master plan, because with our minds we can ask, if love and mercy are good things, why are they missing so much of the time? really the question. If when the chips are down, not only in the dramatic way of being uh, on, a, on a plane that's going down, but in the, in the end of one's life, when you see that the end is coming, you forget about who you... You forget the recriminations and you remember the connections that are connections. People forgive people at the end. I think that's good. I think, I think I, you know, when I hear about sisters that didn't talk for 14 years, they suddenly come together around one of them dying. I'm glad about that and I'm sorry they didn't talk for 14 years. And that maybe the lesson is that we don't know if we have 14 years. I don't know if we have till tomorrow to keep a grudge, you know. That um, with many of my friends, we do not say goodbye when we hang up the phone. We say, I love you. Just in case <coughs> that's the last thing you ever said to that person. I think about the the things we say to people when they go out the door. (coughs) Don't forget to bring your homework home. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's fine. Don't forget to pick up the stuff at the dry cleaners. (laughs) That's all right. I mean, we have to say, don't forget to pick up the stuff at the dry cleaners. Maybe we could also say, and I love you. uh, Because people remember what the last thing is that people said to them. But more than that, I think we remember how we were with people. 
and whether or not we were in connection with them. I wanted to talk about, I have one more poem that I wanted to read, but I wanted to put this in a little bit of a, to make sure I put this in a, I, I say something Buddhist, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> i tell you why, it's a specific reason. I uh, spent two days, I was telling the group that came early for the precepts, I spent the last two days with the teacher, the teacher collaborative here at Spirit Rock. There are 14, 18 people on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council. And it's not usual that we're all there, but we were all there for two days. And I looked around, and I think, what really noble people, you know? I, I, I was thinking at one point, if I added up the collective years that I know these people, it's a lot of years. Um, and uh, I, I, I was saying that we discussed some quite, among other things, some sensitive issues, some things that people really had to say to each other, some things that people had to say that were hard to say to one another. And it all happened in such a spirit of um, safety and um, clarity of understanding that we all have the same mission, we all care about each other, we're all doing the same thing, we all believe in what we're doing. There was a context larger than the stuff that may have been conflictual. Group A thinks we should do it this way. Group B thinks we should do it another way. Um, There's something about remembering that we are all part of Group C that has in mind that uh, really it's about keeping priorities straight and remembering to keep ourselves living in truth. My friend Tamara, who is dying now, says, "I, I really, the most important thing in my life has always been that I should know the truth. Because I really believed that if I knew what was true, I could deal with it. So even now, she said, if I know what's true, I can prepare for it. I always like to prepare, she said. Uh, it's like Sherry prepared, ended all her, talked to everybody that she needed to talk to, made all the plans. There's something about knowing what's 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 true and you say okay this is happening I'm not happy about it you know certainly you know, having the news that you're going to die at a fairly young age nobody is happy about that but to be able to say these things happen so one of the things that we talked about in these teacher meetings is that uh, whether or not Spirit Rock is uh, true to its mission of uh, its mission period and then what's its mission because then the question is, are we a meditation center? Are we a Dharma center? Are we a Buddhist center? Are we supposed to be teaching what the Buddha taught? Are we supposed to be teaching meditation? We are certainly inclusive. There are many people here who would not self-identify as a Buddhist. Uh, some of my friends who are Buddhist teachers identify themselves as students of the Dharma or as meditation practitioners. So... Um, People were saying, you know, you don't have to be a card-carrying, you know, that, uh, or what is a card-carrying Buddhist? Uh, on the other hand, we are a Spirit Rock Meditation Center in the Buddhist tradition. It's full of Buddhas around here. And how much do we, uh, well, there are, you know. Uh, uh, how much are we actually teaching what the Buddha taught 
And how much should we be teaching what the Buddha taught? Should we be teaching meditation? Because mindfulness has been taken out of Buddhism in mindfulness-based stress reduction programs all over the country, in hospitals and clinics to a wonderful degree. The work of John Kabat-Zinn has brought mindfulness into the whole medical world, and the work of Dan Goldman has brought mindfulness into the whole world of education, and the work being done at uh, at UCLA in mindfulness and psychology is bringing mindfulness into the whole world of psychotherapy. And without mentioning the B word, actually, <laughs> in most places. Uh, because it gets, it's more universally, and I actually think the Buddha would have approved of that. When you think about it, the Buddha was not a Buddhist. And what he was talking about, uh, what he was really teaching was liberation, and liberation from the view that um, that uh, there is anything substantial. Liberation, liberation, not being attached to a view. This is the way, that's the way. What he was teaching is seeing clearly. And what, uh, so one of the conversations was, so that, by the way, to come to, to be sure that I teach what I was meant to teach, there should be a curriculum at Spirit Rock. Not that everybody has to pass a test or we give an exam. You know, okay, everybody's going to do the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I, I want to say, I'm not, well, should I do a test? Suppose somebody said, I'm interested in this. I'm interested, there's no pass fail. I'm just interested. Suppose I, I were to say, uh, who here knows the Four Noble Truths? Who here knows the Eightfold Path? Who here knows the three characteristics of experience? Who here knows the four Brahma Viharas? Who here knows the five hindrances? Who knows <laughs> <Those> you know? <laughs> More than anything. Oh, David, it's a pleasure to have you back. <laughs> um, huh? Dependent origination. Who here knows? Okay. Uh, dependent origination is a hard concept. Okay, so first of all, when I come back, I'm going to teach the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Because not, but not to give a test, but because it's a very, it's they're very good rubrics to know. Just they're a way of organizing information. Uh, there are ways to say the Four Noble Truths in other idioms. That it's not exclusive to Buddhists. Uh, Buddhists are not the only people in the world who know that the experience of life is in and of itself challenging. That every minute, you know, that I'm getting used to my new situation, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new situation, is a story of life for everybody who heard of the Buddha or didn't hear of the Buddha. Uh, My grandfather used to say, it's very hard to be a person. And he never heard of the Buddha. So it doesn't matter. Universally, it's very hard to be a person because things keep happening to you that you didn't expect and that you need to deal with in some point. I think that the, that the process of maturation is, is noticing, uh-oh, this is a challenge. How should I do it? And, you know, with children, you tell them in the beginning how to do that. And then by and by, when they have a problem, you say, let's figure it out together. And then a little bit more by and by, you say, think about it. I'm sure you can figure it out. And by and by, you transmit to them 
the notion that they could figure it out themselves. Uh, somebody I was reading recently was such a beautiful some something it was such a beautiful text on child development, talking about the moment in a child's mind. Uh, let's say here is a here is a mother or a father holding a child that oh probably is eight months old, ten months old, maybe more like a year at this point, where you're holding it and you say, see the fire truck. And then they look over and they say, fire truck. And then you say, oh, see the big dog. And they look over and see big dog. And at some point, they get the idea that this other person has a mind separate from their mind and that information can get transferred from one mind to another mind. And that having been established, you transfer all kinds of information, like how to do this and how to do that. And by and by, the information is transferred and the person thinks to themselves, how should I do this? This is a challenge. So, by the way, in, uh, in, in just having another moment of appreciation of Sherry, her way of being sick and her way of dying was a way of showing us all we don't have so many um we don't have so many role models these days of people who die consciously and gracefully telling the truth about it all the time i am dying i am unhappy about it i wish this wasn't happening but it is so this is what i'll do this is how i'll pass on my my um tasks to other people i'll give over my my work, my legacy. I'll make sure my daughters know this. I'll make sure I've said everything to everybody. We don't have so many role models. Most of us did not have parents, uh, if we're old enough, who knew how to do that, who consciously talked about it. Anybody did have parents who consciously talked about it? That's a great thing to have. That's a really great thing. I think it's consoling to the person who's left behind person says, I'm leaving. There's a, a, too bad I didn't bring it. There's a, there's, a, uh, um, there's a description in Nikos Kazantzakis. I think it's in Report to Greco. It's his own bi- biography talking about uh, his grandfather dying and remembering that he was a small child and his grandfather, uh, an old man, and his grandfather giving instructions to the people around to carry his bed outside into the courtyard of the farm where he farmed. And uh, he said, face me towards the setting sun. And then giving instructions, take care of the cows and the sheep because they're people, but they dress different clothing. So uh, don't forget in the funeral uh, that you make for me, to don't be stinting in the... Uh, meal that you prepare for the funeral. Make sure that you prepare enough food. Bless you all. And now's my time. Goodbye and leave. But we don't have so many. We have more anecdotal uh, stories about people dying in a, um, in a wise and alert, non-struggling way. Such and such a Zen master said, I have no complaints and exited. But we don't have real-life friends, mostly, who did that. And Sherry was a real-life friend who did that. Really said, this is, you know, this is it, slowly, slowly, slowly. 
saw less people, talked to less people, and then died quietly. With the message of there isn't anything but kindness, which is really another way of saying the expression of love in the heart in one way or other. To talk about what the Buddha said were the three things that you needed to know in order to know what to do. You needed to know that to struggle with the truth of experience is to suffer. We can work very hard to change things. You get a terrible diagnosis, you go to all the doctors you can. You get all the treatments that you can. You do everything that you can. You don't say, this is it. Say, what can I do? to And before you get sick, you do things to keep yourself well. But then there are things that happen. We do get sick. These things happen. To be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. It's really what the Buddha taught about really the meaning of suffering, that life is full of challenges. And you do the best you can to work out those challenges. And we're not in charge of the outcome. And to be able to say, I did what I could, and this is what's happening. It doesn't mean it's free of pain, but it means that the mind doesn't agonize about it. Really, I think suffering is the wrong word. It's probably a bad translation of dukkha, because it's more agonizing about things. Suffering feels more like pain, but agonizing about things. It shouldn't be this way. My friend Tamara, who's dying now, says the only time I suffer is when I think, why am I still here? When I get impatient, then I'm suffering. She said, but I think to myself, I'm still here because I'm still here. I'm not in charge. You know, I'll, you know, I won't be here when I'm not here. So that's really the only time I suffer. A lot of pain otherwise. So that's the, the, about suffering. The, the suffering and the, and the cause of suffering in the mind, agonizing in the mind, is not seeing that we're not in charge. That's one of the three things that is true. The Buddha said that the second thing that is true that we really ought to know is that we really are not in charge. That billions of years of interlocking evolutionary forces have created this being in this form right now on its way to whatever it'll be tomorrow or the next day or the next day. We don't know on what highway, at what time, on what bridge, in what plane, from what disease, from what aberrant gene, from what malignancy, from what anything. We don't know, and we're not in charge. And to know that, that we're not somehow, and to, really, and to be all right in that, that somehow it's all happening, that karma is true. Wes said a wonderful sentence. He said, uh, we come into every moment of our life uh, dragging with us our entire personal history, plus all of evolution. So that that I had this vision of walking into every moment, schlepping a a tremendous bag of my father's personality, my mother's personality, and this went wrong, and that didn't go right, and this and that and the other thing, and all of evolution, all of my genes that respond this way or that way, my nervousness or my this or my that, we, each of us, come into every moment 
dragging with us, he said, our, our entire childhood, you know, we drag along with us our entire life history, plus the whole of evolution. And here we are. And it's just happening. And to, and to, if you can, if I can move my mind from this is, this is happening to me, ah, or it's amazing that it's happening. Think to yourself this, that this planet didn't fall out of the sky yet. It's still here, going around and around and around and around. And that people know at what moment the sun will set in Santa Rosa, California tonight. <laughs> you know that, and not only that, they know at what moment the sun will set in Cal- Santa Rosa, California on this date in 2083, if there's still a Santa Rosa, California at that point. <laughs> it's not underwater or something. <laughs> That, but And I'm not in charge. I can do everything that I can, but I'm not in charge. That's the second. And the third thing that the Buddha said, so that the truth of suffering, the truth of karma, lawful, lawful unfolding, things cause other things. It is a lawful universe. When I first heard uh, Joseph Goldstein say that, he has a, a strange kind of New York, uh, New Jersey accent. I thought he said it's an awful universe. (laughs) He actually said it's a lawful cosmos. I thought he meant it's an awful cosmos, but uh, it's a lawful cosmos. Things happen because other things happen. Not not untied to everything else. And if I think about that, then I think about connections and the way everyone is connected to everyone else. I think so much when we think about Sherry, of the 8,000 babies with whose lives she were connected. If you do the permutation, the math on that, those 8,000 babies will maybe have 8,000 babies, maybe more. That The connections between things, you don't know the smallest act comes back. Every once in a while you hear a miracle story about the smallest act comes back and later on, and you don't know how it's going to come. And the third of the three characteristics of experience. So if you took a test at the end of today and someone said, what are the three characteristics of experience? You could say they are dukkha, about suffering. They are anatta. There is nothing in charge. It's just all happening. And the third is anicca. It's a Pali word for impermanence. That things are always changing. Everything is always changing. This moment has come and gone almost this year is now gone. Outside, I love it in the fall. You get up in the morning, it's cool. The, the sky is dark at 6 o'clock in the morning. The air smells different. The, tree, the leaves, those that are deciduous, are falling down. It's different. My garden is at the very end of it. We, we get the tail end of the fall in California, but back east, it's really fall. It's a different time of year. This year has passed. And whether we'll be here in the spring, I don't know. I want to read you one more poem. Oh, and then I want to tell you one more thing. I have to pick up the pace. Okay. Two more things. This is Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, a flawless peach, it might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. 
It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the wall and planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. Jane Kenyon, uh, the poet Jane Kenyon, wrote this not long before she died, before her 50th birthday. So what do we do if we know we have this short time? I think we, I think we make sure, for myself, I make sure that I am not disconnected in my heart from anyone. I don't like everybody in the world, but not to wish anybody ill, not to feel wounded by anybody so that I have to put them out of my heart, that they can be there. May they be well, may they be happy, may they have a good year, may all beings be blessed for a good year. And the other thing, ah, we're running out of time, talk fast. <laughs> Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, 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 an ordained Buddhist monk, a Westerner to begin with, a, talking about that Buddhism in this current time, he feels, is obligated to take more action in terms of addressing the pain of the world as, to become more socially involved and active. Now, you all know that from Donald because that really is Donald's... Donald is the expert on that, not myself. He said, but really, Buddhism really has... Um, uh, tends, he feels often to talk about if I address the greed, hatred, and delusion in my own heart, then I purify my own heart and I will be a different person in the world. And by being a different person in the world, the people who come in contact with me and so and so, I will spread peace just by my very being. I think that's true. I also think that there is so much pain in the world that what Bhikkhu Bodhi is saying is that Christian organizations, Christian aid, American Jewish World Service are all organizations that do not, they don't proselytize, they're not looking for converts. They are committed to uh, uh, social justice. They, they express their commitment to social justice, their religious commitment to social justice, that all people should be able to live in peace and lie down in peace and have enough to eat and drink clean water and have medicines when they're sick to address poverty, hunger, and disease, regardless of race or region or nationality. As the religious commitment of caring for all beings, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings. So I just wanted to tell you, because someone sent me this yesterday, uh, of what's happening in MIT. MIT has nurtured dozens of Nobel Prize winners in cerebral realms like astrophysics, economics, and genetics. But lately, the Institute has turned its attention towards concrete thinking to improve the lives of the world's bottom billion, those who live on a dollar a day or less and often die young. This summer, it was host to a four-week International Development Design Summit to identify problems cobble together prototype solutions, and winnow the results to see what might work in the world. Mohammed Mashal, a young British engineer, 
headed for a job who's headed for a job with BP on the North Sea this fall, poured water into a handcrafted plastic backpack worn by a design partner, Bernard Kiwia, who teaches bicycle repair in rural Tanzania and hopes to offer women there an easier way to tote the precious liquid for long distances. Going to go for water on their bicycles with their plastic backpacks instead of on their head. Sham Tembo, an electrical engineer from Zambia, and Jessica Vechakul, an engineering graduate student from MIT, slowly added a cow manure puree to a five-gallon bucket holding charcoal made from corn cobs. In the right configuration, the mix could generate enough electricity to charge a cell phone battery or a small flashlight for a year. Uh, I'll see another one. And there was another great one. Uh, Backpacks for water. Anyway, you get the point. It's about really thinking. Gandhi said, I think everyone should think before any act, how does the act that I am doing now, how will that affect the poorest person on the planet? And I think to myself, that's a very good reflection for just before this new year in terms of we took precepts and refuges and precepts this morning not to harm. And I actually think if we were to really add to the precepts, it would be how to help, not to harm, and how to help. Maybe this year we'll write the other half of the precepts. So I I brought you just two presents, so I won't pass them out while you're here. One of them... Let me see where they are now. Is I was somewhere giving a talk, and I said, "When I get, when I travel and teach, I uh, don't take any talks with me, because by and large, I think of what I'm going to say the night before or the morning before, or as I'm saying it." I said, "So when I travel, I don't have to take with me the talk about this or talk about that. It's somewhere in me." I said, "But I take two poems with me." and uh, the Metta Sutta. And so it's my little breviary, if you will. Uh, and uh, so if, if when you get this, you fold it over, you also will have a breviary, and it will have uh, a poem called Ga- Kindness by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. It will have uh, uh, a poem both in English and in Spanish by Pablo Neruda called Acayarse, Keeping Quiet. And we'll have the Metta Sutta on the back. So, because we won't see each other until the end of the year, I thought I would give you a present to take with you till the end of the year. We'll sit for one minute. I want to pass these out, but I'm not going to pass them. I'd, I'd like you to come up yourself before you leave and get a pair. And... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, you might think about these pears. Are uh, I, I uh, took them off my tree. I think there's enough for everybody. And wrapped them in newspaper so they should be ready to eat. They should be extremely sweet. And um, the, uh, uh, the custom for entering a new year uh, after sundown tonight is to have the first thing that you put in your mouth be very sweet. Customarily, People dip apples in honey, but um, you could save the pear till tonight and eat it at sundown, or you could eat it this afternoon. And um, 
when you meet people today, you could wish them that they have a sweet year. Let's think in this last minute. Think about Sherry, wherever she is on her journey, whatever happens. Wherever we are, all of us, how her image brings joy into our hearts, even as we miss her presence in our lives. Come up and look at the photos of her if you have time to do that afterwards. Think thoughts for Marvin and Sasha and Emma. And all her friends. And for all of us. And all the people we know at this moment. Dealing with this or that pain or suffering. May all beings be free of suffering. May the world be filled with wisdom. May this be the year that wisdom arises. Enough to change the course of history. May we be instruments of that change. Oh, Betty wanted to say something. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.